and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. John Tudor is a friend of mine. First and foremost, he's someone that I love dearly. He's just a sweet man. I call him sweet quite a few times in today's conversation, but he's just one of those people that you meet that you trust instantly and you feel as though you can tell him anything and it's safe to do so. So first, I just want to acknowledge his presence, his ability to create spaces for people to make them be themselves and to feel comfortable. Beyond who he is as a person, he's also a heck of a coach. He's the founder and CEO of Triple P Consulting. So John has a background in consulting and he currently works as a coach. He's also a member of our Strong Skills team where he coaches executives and helps us with projects when companies are looking for coaches for their executives. He's a facilitator, he's a speaker, he's an author. As I mentioned, he's a consultant. He spent over 20 years working across numerous industries, including the US federal government, state and local government, nonprofits, higher education, financial services, and many, many other businesses. He also has a book, and we are going to talk about this book, which is called Starting Over. And it's basically about his experience from seizures to seizing life. And it's going to be published next year in the spring of 2024. He loves to talk about emotional intelligence. He is someone who is certified in both the emotional intelligence quotient inventory and the Myers-Briggs type indicator. Uh, He is somebody who thinks deeply, who listens with intention, and I know you're going to love John's spirit. Uh, And I say that with honesty and truth. Uh, If you didn't know any better, you wouldn't even know John's story with epilepsy. And so in this conversation, it kind of has 
two parts to it. The first part, we talk about connection and the value of connection. And John is someone who I've been fortunate to connect with and spend time with. We'll talk about spending time around a fire pit. We've broken bread together. And he's someone who is great at connecting with other humans. And as I said, giving them space to be authentic and to be genuinely themselves. In addition to that, he's going to share some of the hardships he's been in and gone through over the last 15 plus years where he's dealt with epilepsy and he's dealt with challenges physically and what those have done for him and how he's handled adversity and how he's dealt with that disease. And he's going to talk about the decision to start over and to start over constantly and to take a risk and to go take a leap and put his life on the line to make himself healthier. And so I think for all of us listening to this, it's a great reminder that we all take risks. We all have decisions to be ma- to be made. And how do we think about the decisions that we're making as it relates to not just ourselves, but also the people that we're surrounded by and the people we care about most in our life. So I know you're going to love John. As I said, he's a sweet man. So here is that sweet man, Jonathan or John Tudor. John, really excited to have you on the podcast. We've had many conversations in many different forums over the years. So to share you with people that have never met you is exciting. And when I asked you, hey, John, what do you want to talk about? Like, what are you passionate about right now? You talked about connection. And I remember during the pandemic, we got together and sat outside and hung out. And I was just saying to someone recently, it was actually a client this morning, that there are high levels of connection and low levels of connection. So when I'm sitting on the couch watching a TV show, that's like a low level of connection that I have with my wife. But if I'm sitting outside around a fire, drinking a glass of wine, there's a lot more potential for high levels of connection. And I find I did not like the pandemic. Let's say this with all certainty. I I did not like it. I'm not one of those people that enjoyed it. I like people. I want to be around people. Some would call me an extrovert. But I will say I do miss the fire pit hangs and just the the sitting outside and bundling up because there was no technology out there. I mean, you have your phone, but there's no TV. There's no distraction. It was just you and the people you're around. And I want to intentionally remember that and bring that back as often as possible. So I want to start with connection. Why is that something that you have leaned into and started focusing on when it comes to your clients and, and what you're passionate about? Yeah. So, so first I wanted to say, do you remember or ask you, do you remember um, the last time I was at your fire pit? Do you remember what that that was for? I remember, well, there was a time where we were together to talk about strong skills and what we were building. And I think there was like some politics being talked about there. Do I have that right? But what was it specifically? That was one of the times, maybe, maybe that was the most recent one, but the one that stands out the most for me was when you gave me a copy of your signed book. And I was just so thrilled like that. That was, that was awesome. I I still cherish that moment and really appreciate you, you doing that. Um, Cause I, I, and I loved your book. Um, It's also, it's also great for fire pits. You can pull out pages and you can throw it in there and it it will work. It'll burn. I haven't done that yet. And I don't recommend those listening do it, but I'm sure it's great kindling. So uh, yeah, back to connection. So yeah, we've, we've hung around a fire pit. We've gone to retreats together. We've spent time together. Um, Yeah. For you though, what, what specifically around connection are you finding with your clients and are you leaning into for yourself? Yeah. So I, so, so recently, um, I read Together by Vivek Murthy, who is um, Obama's Surgeon General, um, and just a phenomenal, phenomenal book. Um, and and what I took from that was there's such an issue around loneliness in our country and the world in general. And I started to pay attention to that in the workplace um, with with my clients. Um, you know, and a lot of that was because of COVID, but even since then, right, there's still, we're not connecting in the ways that we used to. Um, and when we actually do, and we're intentional about connecting in those personal ways, it 
just changes the tenor of the conversations. It changes how, how much magic we can make together. I've seen that so many times. Um, and, you know, it's true, not just in the workplace, it's true in, in, in personal, which I know we'll get into too, but uh, that's, that's a big part of it. I, I just love seeing how teams are able to overcome the challenges that they have by focusing instead on a winner and a loser um, and focusing on let's, let's connect. When I think of the word connection, I actually feel it, I feel connected. It's emotional. It is an experience. It's not like I think I'm connected. It's I feel connected. And I'm wondering, as we think about workplaces, how can they continue to create experiences to have their people, to make sure that their people feel connected with the work that they're doing? Yeah. So um, it was funny, funny you asked that. Yesterday, I was with a, a client. Um and I was facilitating a, a session with some senior leaders who had not been together in the same room since before COVID. Um, and a lot of the reason why their team, their their leadership wanted them to get together was because they had all this dysfunction and they weren't connecting. And once they got together, it was incredible to see, like it was a totally different experience, right? Like just, just by them being together, like if you hadn't told me that they were having issues, I'd say this, these two teams are optimized. They're, they're doing great. Like they, they're connected. Um, it's just, it's amazing what just getting people away from their day to day and in a room talking and being vulnerable and open. Um, there was so much of that too, right? They, they nobody held back, um, which I, I, it's so important to me and the work that I do is to create that safe space for people to just, open up about whatever it is that's going on and everybody there did that. Um, and that just, that just made the connection that much more powerful. And I know they're going to go back and, uh, you know, just have such a better, better experience working together. It makes me wonder and think about what causes us to be disconnected. If, if we know that there's power in the collective and the energy that you feel, when you're with other humans and creating emotional experiences that might be sticky and memorable for us, it makes me wonder, all right, like what causes us to become disconnected, disengaged, uh, uninterested, like, and are we more disconnected today than we were maybe five years ago? Like what, what are your thoughts on disconnection and what that looks like, sounds like, feels like? Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great point. I think we are, we definitely are more disconnected than we were five years ago. Um, I think a lot of what drives disconnection is assumptions. Um, you know, we've, you know, we talk about the, the difference between intentions and behaviors, right? So we want to be judged on our intentions, but, but we judge others on their behavior, right? Because unless someone tells us what their intentions are, we, we don't know. Um, and when we're just judging people on behavior, there's a lot of assumptions that go along with that. Um, and when, when you're really busy, like, you know, we are, our clients are, it is so easy to just jump to those, those, those assumptions and make, make those conclusions. And, you know, we've, we've talked about above the line, below the line. One of my favorite models that I share with clients all the time, we're wired to go below the line. We're wired to, you know, come up with that negative story. Um, and I think that's, because of that, it, it happens so often when we're not together, right? If we're just in our own offices or where you know, it's so easy to just say, all right, I'm going to make up a story right now and move on instead of just walking down the hall or picking up the phone. It's interesting because obviously remote creates barriers that can create disconnection. But to your point earlier, there are remote teams that are really connected. And there are teams that go in the office every day and are completely disconnected. Yep. I heard this explained at one point to me, which is that loneliness does not mean that you're by yourself necessarily. Like you can feel really lonely surrounded by hundreds of people. And oh. so loneliness and the idea of loneliness is not necessarily just about physical connection, but it's actually about like something deeper that we actually are experiencing together. And perhaps it's linked to, the ability to be vulnerable and the ability to open yourself up 
but also the ability to share and the ability to receive and, and the ability for us to actually listen. And, you know, and I was doing some research on you beyond what I know, it's clear that people think of you as a great listener. And I know I've experienced you as a great listener. And so I'm wondering about how can we help people that might feel lonely, even if they are in the office every day? Or I used that example earlier, like I could be sitting on the couch, my wife could be sitting on that couch, we'd be watching TV and be completely disconnected. Or let's be honest, how many times are we all pulling out our phones and we're hanging out with friends, but we're living in this alternate universe on social media and we're disconnected from the people that we're in. I know for me, I love sports. You love sports. There's sometimes when I'm watching a game with my friends and I'm completely disconnected from them. We're just focused on the thing. And so I'm wondering how we can all become more connected with the people in our lives. And what do we do if we start to feel lonely, even if we are around other people, what, what should we do in those situations? If you have any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's so much of, of what we, you know, how we, we've been trained to be coaches. Um, it's to me, it's, it's fairly simple and straightforward, but it's easy to forget. It's curiosity and asking questions, right? You just, you never know what you're going to get from someone, especially if it's someone that you don't talk to regularly and where that conversation is going to lead. But the more you can show that curiosity and ask them those open-ended questions, you're going to connect somehow, right? There's going to be a connection other than, you know, especially if, if they are open-ended questions, because you're, you're going to go deeper. It's not just going to be, you know, that the surface level stuff. And I, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I talk with some clients that say when we start getting into this stuff, well, it's work. Uh, I, I can't, I can't go deep. I can't go deep. And I get that to some extent, but I challenge that too, because I think there's a way to go deep and be vulnerable at work that isn't inappropriate, right? There, there certainly is a line in at work, like, you know, you don't want to share too much, but there, there are ways to be vulnerable and to connect and go deeper that are still very much appropriate. In my opinion, not just appropriate are necessary to be successful, to reach, you know, the, you know, your, your full potential as a team or as an individual, um, it, it has to happen and it just doesn't enough. It's, it's um, interesting. So, so it's the question. Sorry, yeah, it, it's interesting when we think about vulnerability, which is a, you know, a buzzword. Brene Brown has done a lot of work on vulnerability and it's, it's made its way through my world, your world, a lot of people listening to this. She defines vulnerability as simply emotional exposure. And I think sometimes we think of vulnerability as just oversharing or just, you know, going deep, but vulnerability also is showing anger or maybe expressing, Hey, I feel jealous or uh, my willingness to go for it and take a risk uh, courage. I mean, there's all these other components that come with emotional exposure. It's just showing the range of emotions. And I said this recently to a client, great leadership requires having a great range of emotions. If you yeah. only have, anger, or you only have excitement, or you only have passion, or you only have even like stoicism, and you're just stoic, and you show one side of you, you miss the ability to connect with different people, right? If I am excited when John is, you know, going through a hard time, that's probably not appropriate for what John needs. If, if John just got promoted and is excited, that may not be the time where I show him um, you know, humility or, or grace, it might be the time to really be like, man, I'm so proud of you. Right. And so as leaders and as humans, when we have a variety of tools in the toolbox, when it comes to emotion, the more likely we are to connect with different people. And I think it is so critical that we don't just think of vulnerability or connection as going deep. It's also your ability to go grab a beer with someone and just shoot the shit with them. Like that is a piece of that may be a vulnerable thing, or it might be, you know, watching a game with somebody, um, but asking one poignant question that might've been based on curiosity about the game and getting their perspective on it. So connection can happen in so many different ways, certainly going deep and being vulnerable brings out another side to us. And I think you were hitting on this that we often don't double click on or tap into at work. So that's why it can be helpful. There is people will see the professional buttoned upside to you and they might need to see another side to you 
uh, as well. But I know I, I will show people a professional side to me that sometimes they're like, whoa, I didn't know he had that side to him. So <laughs> I think showing the different parts of our personality is actually what authenticity is. We sometimes think authenticity is one way and authenticity is elastic. You got to be able to show all these different pieces to you. And that's where the vulnerability comes in. I love the way you put that because as you were talking, the word that kept coming to mind for me is authenticity. Yeah. Cause you know, being authentic is not, all right, I just have to be buttoned up at work, right? That's you're, you're, you're pretending, right? You're, you're being someone different in that, in that situation because you feel like you have to be that way. Um, so yes, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and I think the definition of vulnerability, um, sometimes gets a bad rap and I, love Brene as much as you do. And I, I talk about her and share her videos and, and everything with, with all my clients all the time. And it's so well received. Um, but, you know, vulnerability used to be a four letter word, right? It was especially for men, right? Like you don't, we don't do that, right? We don't show weakness. Well, you know, I, I start out a lot of my sessions where I'm talking about vulnerability is you know, I'm here to tell you that vulnerability is power. There is strength in vulnerability. It is not a weakness at all. Um, and it's it's so interesting to see people's reactions to that. Um, you know, I, sometimes you get the big wide eyes and sometimes you get nodding, but um, I'm so thankful for Brene for really making that uh, a reality because um, that that is such a powerful breakthrough for people. Yeah, you have two children, I have two children, and parenting is a daily exercise in emotional regulation. And for me, I do want my kids to see me angry sometimes. I do. If they do something that puts them in danger or something that is not okay, they do need to see anger sometimes. And it's not anger in terms of like, you don't need to yell to express a feeling of anger or disappointment. Uh, you, can, you can express that in a manner that is thoughtful. And look, it's harder to handle those emotions like anger uh, and sadness in a productive way. But I know you spend a lot of time on emotional intelligence. I think the ability to locate yourself, to label it, to let them know, hey, I'm disappointed or I'm angry right now. Uh, and a boss is no different. You need to be able to express, hey, I'm disappointed or angry or I expect more of you. That's leadership. That's parenting. And, and just to play in a different emotional sandbox all the time is not necessarily healthy. And so when I think of that vulnerability, I think of that exposure to those range of emotions and being intelligent with how we uh, step into them, being aware of them. You mentioned locating yourself, being able to locate, all right, I'm a little below the line. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm fatigued. I'm stressed. I'm angry. I'm sad, whatever those things are. And sometimes it is completely appropriate for you to feel those emotions. And if we don't have those emotions, you're a sociopath. You don't want that. Like you want to feel the different emotions. And I think sometimes we, especially we both love basketball. You see this with athletes. Sometimes they just numb out the emotions and, and coaches will say, Oh, just give me the guy. That's not going to have the emotion. Well, if you study championship teams, there's usually personality and emotion inside that locker room that helps teams win because you need it and you need to have emotion without necessarily being emotional. And so human beings need to be genuine and authentic. And when you said that word, I thought about your situation right now and uh, your ability now to share a part of you that other people may not have known. So I think you got your, your first seizure with epilepsy when you were 30. Um, yeah. So there are people that grew up with you that probably didn't even know this was a thing. Uh, and it's interesting because I think about something that I've had my whole life, which is being deaf in my left ear. And a lot of people don't even know that. Uh, the people that grew up with me knew it because they heard me say it over and over. But I'll I'll meet people all the time and hang out with them multiple times, multiple times. And then they'll be shocked or people I've known for 15 years. And somehow they managed to to think I was either a bad listener or, you know, whatever was going on. But um, that's something I've lived with and adjusted and adapted. But for you, you've had to deal with the challenges as an adult. And so I want to just go into this uh, as you're sharing your story with people and as you're sharing the challenges and tribulations you've gone through, what's that been like for you to tap into that vulnerability? Uh, and what's that been like to express that to people? So, yeah, starting over, um, and I have a subtitle now, um, so it's From Seizures to Seizing Life. Um, 
And yeah, it's, you know, people ask me, like, I, I never, it's never been on my bucket list to write a book. I mean, I think I, I think I messaged you once, like you, you did inspire me to think about that. Like when I, when, when I read your book um, and, you know, I had, I spent over 40 days and nights in the hospital in 2021 across the three brain surgeries. And, you know, the mind has a way of wandering after a while when you're in a hospital, not able to leave the room and being monitored by a camera the entire time. Um, and so, you know, I started just documenting all the things that had happened in those 14 or 15 years. And I just, then I started writing about them. Um, and I had, had the idea, I'm like, what if, what if I turn this into a book? And I started doing some research on, okay, other books that were out there. And yeah, there's, there's plenty of books on epilepsy and this kind of thing. But, you know, I felt like the way that I want to tell this story is, is different. Um, and I went to see a friend of mine who's in the literary world and told him the idea and he loved it. And then he connected me with a bunch of people and, you know, sort of the rest is history from there. But it's been, it's been an incredible journey. I mean, writing a book is not for the faint of heart, as you know, very well. Um, I'm in the heavier visions phase now, which is very painful, <laughs> uh, but not as painful as over 500 seizures and, um, you know, 200 plus medical tests. I mean, the amount of MRIs and blood work and CT scans and EEGs and et cetera, et cetera. It's just, uh, it's mind numbing literally. Um, but I haven't had a seizure in almost two years now. And so that's the, that's the, the, the best news of all, um, you know, having, having brain surgery, three brain surgery was, was not a, you have to do this kind of thing, right? Like it's, it wasn't like I had a, um, malignant tumor that needed to be removed. Um, and, you know, the first time my doctor, my neurologist said to me, you know, um, surgery is an option. <laughs> I, I looked at him, Brian, I was like, no effing way. Can I, can I curse? <laughs> You can I, mean, I literally said, I, I literally said no fucking way. No but your parents, way. but your parents may listen to this. So now, you, you know, you got to deal with them, but yeah, go on, go on. They've, they've heard me say it a few times. Um, you know, I, no fucking way. Are you going to mess with my brain? Like, no. Um, and I just continued to experience seizure after seizure after seizure and medic, you know, the whole medication game of okay let's try this let's try that let's try this oh that didn't work let's add that or and when so, so the the moment i knew i needed to explore surgery was um i had a tonic-clonic seizure which most people know as grand mal but the you know the, the scientific name is tonic-clonic um seizure in front of my older daughter naomi she was about three at the time and you know my wife, Julia, who, you know, well, um, you know, told me kind of how Naomi reacted, but I, you know, when I regained consciousness, I saw the fear in her eyes. I heard the sadness in her voice. Um, you know, she couldn't articulate it, but I'm certain she thought she lost me in that moment or, you know, in those moments watching me thrash around in bed. Thankfully I was in bed. Um, you know, I, I just, I can't put my family through that again. Um, that, that was, that was pretty traumatic. It's one thing for it to happen, you know, alone or with Julia, but with, with my girls, no, I just, I, I just, I can't. So that's what pushed me into the surgeries. Um, even though I had a lot, still a lot of people in my life, were like, you are crazy. <laughs> You're going to do what? What? <laughs> what were the risks of the surgery? What were the, uh, walk us through the decision to do it, which I think you've sort of given us, but what would be the reason not to do it? Yeah. So, um, I actually, I, I talk about this a fair amount in the book, um, you know, just decision-making in general, when, when we have big things in our lives, like how do we, how do we go about that? And this was by no means a simple decision. I mean, if you saw, the legal documents that I had to sign before each of these surgeries that listed out the risks, the possibilities, the side effects that could happen after the surgery. Uh, 
it's pretty scary. I mean, death. <laughs> I mean, that's as scary as it gets, but that is one of the risks listed there, right? You could die. Um, bleeding in the brain, stroke, loss of eyesight, um, loss of um, other executive functions, um, even, you know, struggling to walk the way you used to. I mean, there are lots of things in there, Brian, that are really scary. But at the same time, you know, I met with this neurosurgeon at, at Johns Hopkins. And as I like to tell people, he had me at hello. <laughs> if, if you remember uh, uh, Jerry Maguire, one of my one of my favorite movies. Um, and I just I just knew this guy just he, he kind of walked me through the entire procedure or each of the procedures um, and it, you know, explained to me every detail. And that's like all he does all he does right like that's but that's what i wanted right did he have a bedside manner not at all <laughs> like we couldn't have we can have this conversation but can he perform an seg can he you know put a laser through a hole in the back of my head and burn my non-dominant hippocampus perfectly absolutely and that's that's what i needed so you mentioned decision making how do you think about decision making what's key to making great decisions yeah. Um, this is a topic I, I've, there's so much written about it and and I love just seeing all the different perspectives on it. Um, I'll tell you for me, so much of it centers around, um, emotion because, you know, emotional intelligence, again, such a huge part of my life in general and the work that I do. Um, but also just, the, the somatics around decision-making, like what is my gut saying? What is my head saying? What is my heart saying? Like I really try to connect to those different parts of my body and something else that I write about in the book too, like that, I mean, these were, this, that was part of my process in making some of these decisions. Like what, what is my heart saying? What is my head saying? What is my gut saying? Like what, what where, what, because the body, and this is where, you know, our, our mutual friend Miranda um, comes in. Uh, she sort of helped me with this uh, and I need to catch up with her. Uh, I love Amanda or Miranda. I just haven't talked to her in a while, but our body tells us so much that we aren't even aware of, right? Cause we're just not tuned into it, not plugged into it. But I've found that even, even before I had these conversations with Miranda, like in those really stressful, scary moments, you know, I was able to sort of tune into that. Um, yeah, there's also something called second order thinking, and I'm thinking of that when I'm hearing you talk. And second order thinking suggests, all right, how does this decision impact you 10 minutes from now? How does this impact you 10 months from now? And how does this impact you 10 years from now? And a lot of times we make decisions based on the 10 minutes, and we don't pay attention to the 10 years. And when you said you saw your daughter, and when when you heard her response to seeing you, you, it was clear for you because you don't want her to have to deal with this for the next 10 years. And 10 years from now, you want to be able to be there for her and her not to worry about this and for you not to worry about this. And I imagine 10 months as well. Um, and it sounds like it worked, which is awesome. Um, can you give us a little more education and background on, on epilepsy? And so you get diagnosed with this when you're 30. I'm assuming that's when you have your first seizure. Um, and then you, you've painted from then until now, but um, I'm sure people don't know, you know, is this brought on by something uh, physically? How does it manifest? How does it show up? What causes it? Uh, give us a quick summary on that. And then I want to go back to this concept of starting over. And that's the title of the book. So it's an interesting title. And I, I, I have more thoughts on that, but let's stay on just the little brief education on epilepsy. Yep. No, I can't wait for your thoughts because uh, I I really um, I'll, I'll give you the story behind it. Um, but so yeah. So in terms of education, um, I mean, there's there's so much. It is such a complex disease. Um, you know, the brain is the most complex organ in our bodies. There's still so much that doctors don't know about the brain, um, and so epilepsy is still a mystery in a lot of ways. Um, but the things we do know um, that I think are surprising for people when I talk about it, 
The first thing is um, one in 26 people in the United States have epilepsy. So you think about that. I mean, that's not, it's not a huge number, but I mean, it's pretty big. And everybody listening to this knows someone or knows someone who knows someone, right? Yeah. If you had asked me to guess one in what, it would not have been 26. So to me, that answer is, you know, that's way, way higher. What is that? Close to 4% or whatever the number is. So, okay, let's go, keep going. So we know them, but we don't necessarily, I don't, I don't think, I, I didn't know that you had it until you shared it. So it's like a hidden thing that maybe people don't always witness, or you might be going through a seizure that I think people can't see, or there's, there's more to it than meets the eye. So give us a little more color into, into that. Yeah, totally. So, um, you know, again, people, I think most people, when they think about epilepsy, if they can even define it, because there are plenty of people that can't, they think grand mal seizure, right? So someone loses consciousness, falls on the ground and starts shaking uncontrollably. That's one of over 30 different types of seizures. Again, talking about the complexity of it. Um, and yes, there are, there are seizure types that you're awake and aware. In fact, a lot of, a lot of the seizures that I've had are what's called focal aware seizures. So I'm conscious, but the way I describe it in the book um, is, so I have, uh, I first have this really awful smell, um, which the description, I there's a very long description in the book, so I'll, I'll leave that to, to people who want to read it. Um, but then I, I have this scene playing in my head. It's, it's, at first I called it deja vu. And then as I was writing the book, I was researching deja vu and it's, it's actually not deja vu. It's, it's what I would call flashbacks. So it's literally like a movie playing in my head of something that happened in my life in the past. So the one, the one that's most vivid is um, when I was in the hospital for one of the surgeries, I can't remember now which one, but um, I had an aura of being back in high school when I was watching this documentary about, there was, I don't know if you remember this, there was a mass shooting at the University of Florida. And I had a bunch of friends that were going to go to University of Florida like that summer. And I was just, I was so scared for them. Like this was, you know, now like mass shootings sadly happen all the time. Not that that makes it any better, but like back then that, that was a very rare occurrence. And so something inside my brain kept that in there and it came out at that moment for God knows what reason, but like, that's, that's what happens with a focal aware seizure. Um, it's, it's like watching an old movie that happened in your life. Um, and then there's a lot of physical stuff, like it get very sweaty, um, uh, you know, and, and sort of tired and dull. Um, it takes some time to recover from it, but that there's, you know, you don't lose consciousness. You're, you're awake through that whole thing. So just to give you a flavor for, you know, grand mal seizure versus, you know, one of the other types. How, how do you think epilepsy has shaped how you coach? You know, the, the first word that comes to mind is, is empathy. Um, but I'm not sure how much, I, I mean, I think, I think the epilepsy has, has definitely impacted that, but I'm, I'm sort of an empath in general. I mean, I, I, I cried at my daughter's uh, preschool um, orientation. So uh, <laughs> if that gives you any idea. Um, so, but I think, I mean, I'm going to go with that. I, I think, you know, there's no substitute for being able to understand other people's challenges, struggles, issues, than you going through something unexpected, um, you know, just really, really challenging yourself, right? So um, I think having gone through this, it just gives me a new um, sense of being able to put myself in other people's shoes that are struggling. Um, you know, Brene, Brene has a great video on, on, on empathy, which, you know, she sort of pushes back on this notion of we can, we can walk in other people's shoes. And I, I agree with her to some extent, but, um, 
yeah, that's a whole other conversation, but I, I do, I think, you know, when, when you go through something that is, you know, life-changing, um, it, it just, it, it changes your perspective in terms of how, how you can show up for people is, is how I've experienced it. And I mentioned the title. So let's, let's dive into the title of the book. It's interesting. Cause when I first saw it, I thought about one of our first meetings, we knew each other. Uh, but I think I reached out, we were, I was doing some work at GW, you were nearby in an office and I met with you and I was thinking like, oh, this is a great, like, I'd love to work with John. He has seemingly a job. He cares about leadership. I, I, I probably had some, some nuggets that made me think like John would be a great client. And that quickly turned into, in our next, uh, I think it was a breakfast actually. You're like, yeah, so I'm going to Georgetown to do executive coaching. I was like, huh. I guess he's not going to be my client, uh, but that's awesome. That's cool. And so I think about you and your career, you had this consulting career. Um, it seemed like you had carved out a nice role for yourself. I'm sure there was some financial rewards attached to it. And I, I was kind of surprised when I heard that. And I would imagine you still can do some consulting with the work that you're doing now, but it was a bit of a starting over, you know, when you took a leap uh, and left maybe a, a more corporate job that provides quote unquote security. And so when I, when I saw starting over, I thought like, Oh, it's an interesting phrase for John um, to share. And I would imagine as I get into it and the book's not out yet. So those of you that might think I'm lazy for not have written, read the book, it ain't that it said the book's not out yet. As John said, he's still going through uh, the final processes of it, but the starting over concept, I'm thinking of epilepsy and how every single time you have uh, a seizure, there's a starting over. And then you've uh, outlined the surgery for us and how it's changed the last two years of your life dramatically. And, and then I think about just zooming out for a minute and how that we're all kind of starting over every single day uh, or really every moment of every day is a new moment. And we like to make things clean and clear. We're heading toward the end of the year. Okay, it's a new year. Let's start over. Uh, and we think of things in terms of days or minutes or hours of time. And when I see starting over, I'm thinking a little bit more granular. So give us your perspective on on starting over and what that phrase means to you. Yeah, it's funny. So as as you probably experienced, like I it definitely was not my first title. Um, you know, I went through a bunch of other titles. Um, and I will say, so there, there were a couple of things that happened that got me there. One of them, um, was watching Chris Stapleton do the, uh, national anthem at the Super Bowl, And as you know, I'm a huge Eagles fan and, um, watching, uh, Nick Sirianni cry you know, have that emotional moment and, you know, be vulnerable enough on national television to allow those emotions to happen. Like I, that was just such a cool moment. And Chris Stapleton is just one of my all-time favorites. He just, he's incredible. And he has a song called Starting Over, which is the words, there's some words in that that are so incredibly meaningful to me and my journey. And I actually wrote a bunch um, wrote a bunch about those words. And then, you know, as you probably know where I'm going with this. So my, my editor reviews it and she's like, um, do you know how much it costs to, uh, include musical lyrics in a book? <laughs> I was like, no, what? So that no longer in the book, but, um, there's, there's a line in there in, in his song it goes something like nobody wins who's afraid of losing. Um, the hard roads are the ones that we're choosing. And that's just, that's sort of been my mantra since all this started. Um, Cause having three brain surgeries was the hard option. That was the hard road and it was starting over. Right. I mean, that so many things changed at that point. Um, and it took a long time to recover from that surgery. You, you remember some of those days, like this is not like, okay, in and out and you're good. Like it, it took a good year before I, maybe even longer before I felt back 
to myself. Like this is a big, it's a big deal. Um, so it really did feel like starting over. Um, and those, those words are just so meaningful for me. Um, you know, I, I, I had my friends giving with my Georgetown cohort recently, and we were talking about what are we looking forward to in the new year and what we're going to focus on. And, you know, I said some words that maybe are going to surprise you. They certainly surprised me. Like my focus this year is leaning into the spotlight because I've spent so much time in my life shying away from it, trying to like let it be, let other people take that spotlight. Um, but no one wins who's afraid of losing, right? So I am, I'm playing to win, Bri. <laughs> why, why have you been afraid of the spotlight? Oh, um, there's, there's so many things behind that. Um, I think, you know, being one of four and certainly, you know, part of the part of triplets, like it, it's, it's sort of easy to hide to some extent, right? Cause we kind of get lumped together a lot, not by our parents, but like other people, oh, it's the triplets, it's the triplets. Um, but I think for me, um, I, I just, I was just uncomfortable with the spotlight on me. It just never felt right. Um, and you know, I was just interviewed on good morning, Washington. Like I never thought that would ever happen. Um, and I'm, I'm embracing it. I'm loving it. Like this is, this is like a whole different experience. Um, you know, so much of, of what we do in our work is about helping our clients do, you know, step out of their comfort zones and do different things and try different things and see what happens. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to give that advice. It's sometimes hard to take it. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that, that's really what I'm focused on right now. It's interesting. Cause I watched that interview and you have a calmness to you. And I think you have a calmness to you when you're around most people, there's a, a sweetness to you. There is a, I'm going to use the word calm. What's going on underneath the surface. Take us the getting interviewed and being on TV because you present as calm. And when you're interacting with other people, I think they'd probably say, Oh, John's like a good guy. He's calm. Like, I don't think of John as erratic. Um, like I would go toward the words would be like solid and high integrity. And I, I'm sure I'm not alone. You've, these are words that people have used to probably describe you. Calm would be a word. What's going on underneath the surface? Yeah. Uh, before I go underneath the surface, so related to that, um, our our wedding photographer described me as stoic, and that sort of shocked me. And then I started like talking to other people about that. Like, why does that shock you? You are stoic. I'm like, hmm, okay. <laughs> I don't think I would describe you as stoic, but I would say like under control and calm and thoughtful and like intentional. I'm around stoic people and I understand why they use that word to describe you. So I get it, but I think you have a, an emotion to you, a sensitivity, which we've covered that would counter a stoicness, but there is a groundedness or a peacefulness. Like, I don't think I'd want you in a street fight. I don't think I'd want John <laughs> to be like the guy I've got in a street fight. Right. But yep. I do think I'd want John to collaborate with, to work on things. Uh, we've we've had conversations like this. I think there's a calmness to you. There is like I'm good. I'm okay. Like things will be okay. Yeah, and I, you know you'll 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 probably appreciate this, but I think stoic compared to Julia, right? So so when but there's a comparison. Yes, I I think most people are stoic compared to Julia. And I mean that in the best possible way. I love you, Joel. <laughs> and I'm probably more of the Julia in my relationship. And my wife is probably more like you. And yep. so, uh, you know, maybe a bigger presence and take up more space. Um, and and your wife, who I think I knew before I knew you yep. somewhere in, in our in our circles. Yeah, I mean, his wife, Julia, first of all, both of us outkicked our coverage. That's pretty 
obvious and, and easy for people to see, but, uh, but Julia, yeah, she's got a personality to her and people are probably drawn to her and not to say you don't have that and not to say my wife doesn't have that. Let's be crystal clear. Yeah. But, but I do, I think that there is, my wife has a calmness to her that it, it complements me pretty well. Um, and I can go more up and down and she'll be more even keel and she'll be more grounded and she's on the floor while I'm in the clouds. Uh, and it's one of the reasons I think we've collaborated well together when we're working on things like I will be in the clouds and, and come up with ideas and, and be up here. And I think you're really good operationally and saying, all right, let's bring it back down and figure out how we're going to make this thing work. Yeah. I, I think, you know, what, what, what goes on inside. Um, I, I just, I don't allow myself to, to go down rabbit holes very often, not to say that I don't ever. Right. But um, I, I think, you know, one of the reasons I'm drawn to emotional intelligence is regardless of, you know, the, the scores, right. Cause the scores are, but, but I feel like it sort of comes naturally to me. Um, I'm able to, to manage my emotions pretty well in most situations, um, without really focusing on it. Um, you know, there's, there, it just takes a lot to get me flustered or worried or angry or especially when I'm around people that you know are much more emotional I, I I tend to calm down even more when it when there's sort of chaos around me um it's not to say that there's not a lot of stuff going on inside there certainly is but it's it's easier for me to to kind of quell that and not allow that to to take over I want to close by just having maybe a conversation around adversity because here you are and I'm hearing you talk and the amount of seizures and the amount of pain and the amount of times where you lose control of your body, right? And your body's now deciding what you're going to do and, and you're not. To me, it does not sound like something I want to experience. And I don't get the sense that you would say, Brian, this is something you want to experience. And yet our society will often glamorize adversity and, oh, you grow and you get stronger and you improve. And you made it, you said the hard decision, the difficult decision to actually go toward adversity for 10 minutes from now to hopefully maybe reduce adversity 10 years from now. Yeah. And so I'm curious to get your perspective, having gone through the adversity of the, the seizures and epilepsy and also the surgeries. There's like these two different elements of adversity that you've gone through. Uh, what's your response or relationships, a better word, what's your relationship with adversity today that it, that you didn't have maybe when you were 29 years old? Yeah. Um, adversity is, I would say it this way, it's it's just much much more comfortable than it was when I was 29. Um, you know, when you go through something that again, unexpected, out of the blue, like you you asked me this before, and I do want to touch on this if we if we have a minute. Um, there are various things that can cause seizures, um, you know, traumatic brain injuries, um, stroke you know there, there's tumors there's a variety of things that cause seizures but there's also what's called cryptogenic or idiopathic epilepsy um which is we don't know doctors don't know how the seizure started and i fall in that category there's a very actually very large percentage of people that are in that category i still don't know why at 30 i just started having seizures um and and that's kind of, that's, it's kind of hard, right? I mean, I guess it's true for a lot of like, why did I get cancer? Why did I get heart disease? Um, you know, sometimes it can be genetic, but no one else in my family has, has ever had epilepsy. Um, and so I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. Like wh why, how, <laughs> like, and so we had, can I, can I share, can I share the hypothesis, which will never be, be able to be proven, but my doctors at least say that it's plausible. Of course. But, <laughs> So this goes back to the triplet thing. Um, and I'll credit my mom with this. So as she calls it trauma in the womb. Um, so my mom is five foot one with three babies in her belly. So, you know, I'm sure we were kicking each other and, you know, knocking, knocking each other around in there. Um, but when 
and I write about this in the book too, when um, the doctors went in to do the C-section, we were five and a half weeks premature, which that's pretty premature, but you know, for, for multiples, it's not that uncommon. Um, when they opened up my mom, they found that my sister had grown a vein from her placenta to mine. Um, she wasn't getting enough nourishment from her placenta. So in order to survive, she was essentially feeding off of me. And as I tell her every day since that she's, she's been sucking the life out of me ever since. Um, love you, miss. Um, but so the doctors had never seen this before and they called in all the, the nurses and the re the residents, the med students and anyone who could get in there just cause like, we don't, we've never seen this before. And we don't know if we're ever going to see this again. And I've, I've researched this. I've tried, you know, talk to, um, you know, high risk OBs. Like I can't find anyone that can give me like a whole lot more on it. Cause it was, just so rare. Um, but, um, when they cut the vein, I had, I started to bleed out and I had to have a tr blood transfusion. And then I was in the NICU for a week longer than they were. I was, I was much smaller than them and my, than my brother and sister. So that's the, that's the hypothesis that that trauma, all of that, that I just described sort of may have led to the seizures 30 years later. I mean, it seems like a stretch, but Hey, we'll, we'll go with it. <laughs> Do you think that impacted you in other ways as well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I so my, my sister and I have always been, not that my brother and I haven't been, but my sister and I in particular have been just been really close. Um, and I think, you know, there, there's something to it. Like I, I saved her life. I mean, I really did um, that. And, but the fact that she was able to do that just like biologically, how does how does one do that? And she's such a survivor. Like if you met, you'll have to meet her someday. She's just, she is a spark plug. Um, uh, so it's, I think it definitely has impacted her life too. Um, but crazy, crazy story. And, um, you know, again, we'll never know, but I, I think it's, it's at least plausible And the doctors again, they're, they're, they're cool with that. <laughs> what, what comes up for me is what we don't know about people's stories and their journeys. And a lot of what you're sharing today is that, Hey, people didn't necessarily know I was dealing with this and people won't know in the future. Hopefully like that's sort of the idea is that they don't know this is part of your story and your journey. And of course you're going to try to share it and, and let people know your story, but how many people are going to interact with? And they have no idea what you've gone through the last few years, the last 14 or 15 years. And then I think about your even being a triplet and what the story that you just told we don't know people's journeys to how they got to where they're at. And this podcast in particular, I've gone a little away from people's journeys and more into what they're doing and what they're focused on today. But to me, this is a great episode as a reminder for all of us to think about, you know, what are the hidden stories or journeys or experiences or traumas or, or beautiful elements that are impacting people. And someone close to me that we both know said to me today, they said, you know, I wonder what pain you're going through that is causing that. And I was like, it's actually, I don't think it's pain. It's, it's a desire and it's a motivation. And so even if we assume that it's pain that's driving someone, we might be assuming the wrong way, which goes back to what you and I are both passionate about, which is being curious and being empathetic and trying to understand people's journeys and trying to understand where they're coming from and not just assuming that they're an asshole. They may be an asshole, by the way. Right. And, and sometimes that's enough. Um, but there's usually more to it if we actually go underneath the hood and go explore and going back to what we talked about at the beginning and being willing to be curious is to let people have the space to be vulnerable and share their experience. So um, I think you are, are a walking example of that. I would imagine the stuff you've gone through is not fun, is not great. And here you are, and uh, here you are, you know, starting anew and, and starting again uh, and, and starting over. And all of us can think about that from a daily perspective, a weekly perspective, a moment perspective, an annual perspective. And I always say like, you don't have to go through adversity to grow. So uh, I don't want to go through what you went through, but hopefully today gives me a little more context on how I can think about that going forward. Uh, John, the book, if people want to purchase it, pre-order it, I know I have. Uh, so you don't have to sell me on the book, but everybody else here that's listening, this is your chance. Like, why should they read this book? 
Well, so the first thing is you actually can't buy it yet. Um, so the pre-sale, the pre-sale campaign is so over. So what did I do? I just signed up for it or something? No, so so you bought it during the pre-sale campaign, but it's not published yet. So when it's published in the spring, you will get your signed copy. Um uh, but once once it's published, um, then it'll be available on the typical you know sites, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, et cetera. I'll post stuff on social media. Um, uh, I, I also have I'm collecting email addresses from people that are interested in um, the book launch, which is still being planned, uh, book tour, and you know purchasing the book when it's available. So um, I'll be posting that as well. So you know if people are interested, you know I can make sure that they stay connected or that we stay connected. Um, why should they buy the book? I, you know, it is, it is a firsthand vulnerable account of how just a completely unexpected life change, um, how that, how that impacts someone. And it's not just about me, right. And it's not just about epilepsy. I think it's about disease in general, right? We, everyone can relate to that to, to some extent and how do we how do we handle those moments what what is the what are the decision making processes that we go through what are the emotions that we experience um you know I, I talk about that one of one of the chapters I devote specifically to what does it feel like to have a seizure right it's one thing to watch someone have a tonic clonic seizure it's a whole other to understand what that feels like and I described that a little bit too earlier but there's more, um, and I really want people to to understand that because it it's gonna be it's gonna mean so much more. Um, I want people to be able to put themselves in my shoes and in other people with epilepsy shoes because um, it's still a disease that is pretty significantly st stigmatized um, and severely underfunded. I'll make my plug for the Epilepsy Foundation of America and for Cure Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy. Um, two phenomenal. Um, epilepsy related causes. Um, and, you know, if you look at the amount of people that are impacted by epilepsy and diseases that impact similar numbers of people, epilepsy is traditionally severely underfunded. Um, and again, I think a lot because there is a stigma and people, because of that, people are afraid to speak out. Um, so I'm just trying to, I'm trying to model that for all the people out there that, you know, there, there is power in, in community and connecting with people that are going through the same kind of thing you are. All right. I just want to go back to 29 year old you and I want to just stay there for a minute and I want to really understand, like, what was your thinking about connecting with people that are going through hard times then? And what is your perception or your thinking around connecting with people that are going through hard times now? So you mentioned we we all either know we know someone who's dealing with a disease right now, whatever that might be if we haven't gone through anything like what you have, it might be hard for us to figure out what's the right thing to say. How often should I reach out? All that good stuff. Obviously 29, uh, you didn't have kids yet. You weren't married yet. Um, so, but take that stuff out of it for a second and let's just bring sweet John 29 year old version of him. Maybe he's dating, maybe he's whatever. We don't need to talk about all that stuff, but, but what do you know now that you didn't know about, helping people or supporting people when they're going through hard things? Yeah. Um, that, that's such a layered question. Um, you know, first, so when I, when I think about hard things, I, I also have to just bring in Glennon Doyle for a minute. Who's one of my favorites. I don't know if you've read any of her books, but one of her big things is, you know, doing the hard things. Um, so I, I sort of stole that from her, but it's, it's so true. I think it's so easy to, to not, step into those moments. Um, so the, the 29 year old me, um, I, you know, I definitely, I, I definitely wouldn't have done that. And I'm, I'm not sure that I would have had the same level of empathy and understanding, um, and been able to ask the type of questions that I, that I could now, um, you know, and some of that's also maturity too, right? I mean, 29 versus 46, you know, there's, there's, there's some maturity there, but um, yeah, it's, you know, going through it again, I don't want anyone to have to experience it, but there is, you know, sort of what we're nibbling around the edges of here. There are silver linings, there are gifts um, with it. And that's part of, part of what I try to talk about in the book, because it's not just all horrible. 
there there are some positives that come from this and and that's i really try to highlight that um because i don't want it to just be about you know people thinking okay you're gonna fall down on the ground shake and bite your tongue and all this right that's part of it but there's there's so much more too well i think it's a good place for us to close with the reminder that there are multiple truths and so it can be true that this is painful, that it's awful, you never want to go through it again. And it can also be true that you learn some things about yourself and what you're capable of and how to handle the negative parts of life, which if we live long enough, we're going to continue to experience adversity and, and traumatic experiences. No one uh, escapes that and and health challenges. And so uh, in that sense, that's a truth and if I don't have to, let's not go through it. And I think sometimes we, once again, glamorize adversity and pain. And I think it's important to not do that and to really acknowledge like, yeah, there's crappy stuff that happens that we don't want to have a part of. And if there's crappy stuff that happens, there's still opportunities for us to learn. That's also true. And so when I listen to you, I hear a lot of that. John, I know you like to play on LinkedIn. I think that's where you're most active. Where can people follow you on LinkedIn? Yeah. Um, my handle, uh, I think, I think it's just Jonathan Tudor. Um, you, you can put that, uh, when, when you post it out there. Um, uh, yeah, that's definitely where I play the most Facebook. Um, but you can see some of, uh, some of my videos and some of my, some of the pictures from the surgeries and all the crazy things that have happened. Um, I am going to be posting the, uh, the replay of the, the television interview as well. Um, but yeah, LinkedIn's probably, probably the best place. Awesome. I am on LinkedIn as well at Brian Levinson and then Twitter X or whatever that gets called at Brian Levinson. Uh, and you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. John, so great to know you. Honored to call you a friend. Good to get to know you a little deeper even today. And so excited for the book to come out and congrats on, on all the hard work. I know it's not finished yet uh, and I'm sure it'll get done. Uh, and I'm, I'm proud of you, man. So good stuff. Thanks, Brian. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. There's a line in there in in his song. It goes something like, nobody wins who's afraid of losing. Um, the hard roads are the ones that we're choosing. And that's just, that's sort of been my mantra since all this started.